Agriculture of America is brought to you by Cenex Premium Diesel. Diesel that doesn't mess around. Informing America's farmers and ranchers, this is AOA, produced by the American Ag Radio Network. Now, here's your host, Mike Pearson. Hello, folks, and welcome to AOA. We certainly appreciate being a part of your day and what a day it is shaping up to be. We've got a lot of conversation coming on today's show. We're going to talk about the cattle market here in just a moment with our friend Chris Swift from Swift Trading Company down in Nashville, Tennessee. And then in segment two today, it's the monthly grind with the National Corn Growers Association taking a look at just what that corn demand actually looks like from an end user's perspective. And in segment three, we're going to take a look at rural electric infrastructure. A substation shooting in North Carolina last week exposed some weaknesses that might be especially felt by folks in rural America. And Robert Bryce will join us for that segment. And we're going to close by turning our attention to the state of Illinois and the work the Illinois Soybean Growers Association is doing to increase broadband access across that state. So stick around. A lot more coming here today. But first, let's talk about the cattle market. Chris Swift, last week we saw cash cattle trade to the, what I believe to be, highest levels of the year. And then yesterday we saw the futures market just look like it fell apart. Chris, what is happening here in the beef trade? Well, I tell you, I think what we're looking at, Mike, is just end-of-year um, window dressing. We've got adequate numbers of cattle on feed right now. Um, we've got plenty of beef production, and we have all of the packing capacity we need. Uh, I don't think it, uh, the numbers will be able to tax packing capacity anytime soon. But then we look out just very, very shortly out into the new year, and we can see where the big cow kill and the heifer placement is going to really start impacting our numbers. You know, as you, we get through here, the month of December, as you mentioned, window dressing, end of the year. Chris, what is that slaughter pace running right now? How do we compare to year-ago levels? Um, right about the same. We're running about 650 to 660,000 head a week is what we're uh, slaughtering right now, and uh, that's uh, equivalent to this time last year. Total beef production is less than 1% lower than this time last year. Uh, it's run that way the whole time simply because of the elevated cow slaughter. That has masked a tremendous amount of loss of the fed steer market that we've had for years. That is a great point. And Chris, that's a drum you've been beating throughout this year as we've been seeing these cow, cow sales happening, particularly across the Great Plains. Looking out then into 2023, what's your anticipated timeline for when that starts to come to light in the data? Well, I think it's already started. Uh, January, at the end of January, we'll get a semi-annual inventory report. We saw at the end of 2014, we were down to 87.7 million animals. On this particular January of 23 report, it's estimated at 90.4. So what we're unsure of is whether or not that we can stop the liquidation in 2023, which will all be dependent upon the weather and the pasture conditions, or whether or not we stay another year in liquidation and move closer to that 87.7 million number. Man, that is a huge drop, Chris. And from the cattle feeders perspective, the cow-calf producers perspective, those that are still involved in the industry, they've been looking forward to this time for leverage to shift back to the cattle feeder as those numbers d diminish out there in the countryside. But I'm wondering, as we look out to 23, given the strength of the dollar, is there the possibility that packers just import enough beef to make up for the shortfall in domestic production? 
Mm, probably not. We're already anticipating a large increase of imports from Brazil in the first quarter of 23. I think after that is done, um, what we'll probably do is just see the industry slow slightly. Uh, packer margins will probably decrease further. We might increase the margins a little bit to the cattle feeder, but the one that's really the most important right now is the cow-calf operator, and that's trying to find the revenue to be able to live while we're waiting in a 12 to 18 months to get that heifer on the ground, get her raised up and ready to breed. So then we can say now we have actually increased the herd size by one. So Chris, for producers who have the pasture conditions to keep those cows around, they're looking to ensure that profitability. Are there any moves you're making now on input costs, locking in for 23 for those producers who are going to have the animals? You know, we did for quite a while up until about two weeks ago. And two weeks ago, things started to change dramatically with the weather forecast, and getting some rain in there will improve the pasture conditions, making it more likely for them to hold back those cows onto the farm. Uh, we were pretty bullish towards the corn market until we started seeing that corn just wasn't going to go up with the energy markets and the other markets. So we turned a little bit negative on the corn markets, and we've seen a huge benefit in fuel prices. So diesel fuel has literally dropped off the face of the earth here lately. We've got down almost a dollar a gallon in that. So if you're looking to really do something, maybe try to find a spot and book some fuel and say that now I've got at least that cost done. And then maybe towards the uh, middle of March or middle of uh, April, we see what the corn crop's going to be like. And if there's no improvement in the drought, we could probably see some higher corn prices there. If there is improvement in the drought, then that would benefit everyone greatly. Absolutely. All of those end users would be singing a sigh of relief to see these prices come back down. I'm wondering, Chris, thinking about the beef, uh, the beef demand picture globally, we've seen China step into this market over the past couple of years, hungry for U.S. beef. Now there's news. They're opening that economy back up. I imagine more folks are going to restaurants, going to go to restaurants. Is that going to work out well for beef exports? It won't be anything bad for it, I'll tell you that. But we know that uh, China gets most of their beef from Brazil, and so the fed cattle market's a very small market in comparison to world beef trade. So it will improve a little bit, but I doubt that it would be enough to really make a big difference. What we really need to focus on is the domestic consumer here, trying to get that discretionary habit changed to spending a little bit more or being able to afford a little bit more of the product. Chris, across the retailer, the wholesale and the retail sector in the beef market, how have prices been doing? Choice boxes, what have they been up to lately? We've been falling pretty hard, and, and that's a seasonal tendency. Once you get past Thanksgiving, most all of your beef sales to the retail stores have already been made. So the box price tends to fall off just a little bit up until the first of the year. And then after the first of the year, everybody gets back and tired of ham and turkey and ready to back to eat a little beef. All right, Chris, while we've got you on the line, I want to talk to you about feeder cattle pricing. Looking out there, you mentioned the shortness of cattle could become apparent in that April-May time frame. I see that in feeder cattle. We jump out to the August. We're north of 200. Where do you see those deferred summer months going? You know, it's really hard to tell, Mike. We've done all kinds of technical analysis to try to figure out where it might go to. And in all honesty, there's, there's no way to tell what somebody is going to have to pay. Different than what they're willing to pay, we believe that the industry has strengthened contractual agreements, vertical integration, and we may reach a point in which there is no choice, but if I'm going to meet that contractual agreement, I've got to pay the price. And we don't know what that price is. 
we can see historically that 245 was a price in history that was okay, but we also had a variance difference in our beef price as well. Now we've already got elevated beef prices, and we're saying that we're going to put the cattle price up even more. And what it really probably goes to expose is you're going to see less margin to the cattle feeder. So you're not going to be able to push the beef out there maybe as, as high a price. And we've also got cattle prices maybe firming up just a little bit, and that has a tendency, excuse me, feeder cattle prices to firm a little bit, and that tends to put a squeeze on the cattle feeder. All right, those margins are going to be volatile in this next year. Chris Swift of the Swift Trading Company, author of the Shooting the Bull newsletter. Chris, thanks for joining us today. Always a pleasure, Mike. Thank you. And folks, stick around. In segment two, we're going to have this month's monthly grind with our friends from the National Corn Growers Association. Stay here for more AOA after this. Agriculture of America is brought to you by Senex Maxtron Synthetic Diesel Engine Oils. Oils that run smart. Tune in the first Wednesday of every month to listen to the monthly grind here on AOA. It's brought to you by our friends at the National Corn Growers Association, and each month we're going to dig into one specific aspect of corn demand. What happens to this grain after it leaves your operations and enters the global supply chain? That's what we're going to talk about each month on the monthly grind. Again, that's the first Wednesday of every month, and you can also find us wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. It's a show you don't want to miss. 2022 will be remembered for chaos between war, inflation, and weather. But if there's one thing farmers know, it's that there's no such thing as normal. That's why this year's DTN Ag Summit will focus on strategies to help conquer the chaos and ways farmers can build endurance for their business. Hear from leaders at CHS, Bayer, and Corteva, as well as farmers from across the country, all from the comfort of your home or office. Join us for this completely virtual event held December 12th and 13th. Register today at DTN.com slash Ag Summit. As a farmer, growing your business is more than just a nine to five. It's your life's work. That's why the Roundup Ready Extend Crop System goes all in to help you stay on top. Backed by decades of innovation, offering the latest trait technology and triple herbicide tolerance, plus more weed species controlled than any other soybean system. Because you mean business, and so do we. Learn more at systemofchoice.com. Claim based on approved EPA herbicide labels as of January 2021. Read and follow pesticide label directions, grain marketing, and other stewardship practices. I think farming picked me. I didn't pick farming. I'm not afraid to try something new. It's my farm, my family, and our future. My channel Seedsman gets that. I get access to innovative products with personalized advice backed by data to maximize my yield potential. With channel, I know I'll prosper for years to come. Define your future at channel.com slash future. Read and follow pesticide label directions, IRM, grain marketing, and other stewardship practices. Copyright 2022 Bayer Group. All rights reserved. What do Mick Jagger, Barbara Walters, and Star Jones all have in common? They've all suffered from something called heart valve disease. Heart valve disease affects 11 million Americans, and if left untreated, can lead to death. Unfortunately, less than one in four Americans have much knowledge of this disease that kills more than 25,000 people every year. The good news is that if heart valve disease is treated, patients can recover and live long, happy, and productive lives. But in order to treat heart valve disease, you need to know if you have it. 
If you or your loved ones are over the age of 65, have been treated with radiation to the chest, have been diagnosed with a heart murmur, or have a history of heart disease, it's time to listen to your heart. Ask your doctor today about screening for heart valve disease. A message brought to you by Heart Valve Voice US. For more information about the symptoms and treatment for valve disease, go to heartvalvevoice-us.org. Agriculture of America is brought to you by Senex Maxtron Synthetic Diesel Engine Oils. Oils that run smart. Keeping America's farmers and ranchers informed on AOA. Now back to Mike Pearson. Today is the first Wednesday in the month of December. That means it is time for the Monthly Grind, our segment each month with our friends from the National Corn Growers Association, where we look at what happens to that corn crop after it leaves your operation and makes its way into the global supply chain. Joining us today, we're going to be talking with Brian Thalman. He's the Corn Board Liaison for the Market Development Action Team. And we'll also be speaking with Denny Vinacotter, the Market Development Action Team's Vice Chairman. And Denny was a part of the group that helped kick this all off back in July. Denny, I think back on when we kicked this all off, it was the Corn Congress in the summer of 2022. And I'm wondering, what was it that made national corn growers think that this was a, a an opportunity that they had to be a part of? Yeah, we just want to try to get our message out. You know, that way the public can know more what we're up to. That's what it's all about. And Denny, when we think about that market development action team, what is their scope of work? What is it that they do over there at NCGA? Well, <clears throat> we are just trying to, you know, uh, look for that next thing to grind more bushels of corn. You know, how can we how can we grind more in feed, uh, whether it be for uh, fuel, fiber. We're just trying to expand and and bring more value for every bushel of corn that's grown in the United States back to the farmer. That's what it's all about, bringing that value back to the operation, back to the bottom line of the American corn grower. And of course, there's a lot of partners that help the industry do that. We've chatted with several of them over the past several months here on the Monthly Grind. Brian, I'm curious, one of those key constituency for corn demand are cattle producers. We've talked about that here on the program, haven't we? NCGA and the cattle associations have worked together quite a bit. Yes, we have. Uh, you know, the, the cattle and the whole livestock industry are such an important market to the American American farmer, and any efforts that we can do to work together and both promote the quality of the corn going into that beef product and also to help promote the beef product here in the U.S. and abroad is beneficial to all parties involved. It certainly has. And Brian, I'm curious, your position there, the Corn Board Liaison, what does that role mean here in the, in the terms of NCGA? NCGA has got seven action teams. Now, the market development team is one of them. And of our 15-member uh, national board, one of us is appointed to each of the seven teams. We can sit in on the team meeting, provide some input and direction based on what the, uh, the national board would be feeling. But more importantly, we're there just to provide a connection and, and look and listen to the great work being done by the team. And then when there's some proposals that are put forward from the team, they'll come back to the board for full approval and then we can answer any questions that the board may have as we take final action, uh, for example, on our project uh, partnering, partnering with you to get the, uh, the good story out to our, our listeners. 
So what it's all about is finding ways to increase that connection and make sure that story gets told. And on the beef front, I know that NCGA and the Cattlemen's Association have partnered on like learning lounge opportunities at different conventions, for example. Right. And that's been a, a great way, again, to, uh, to work together. And, you know, in many cases, we've got a lot of beef producers that are also corn farmers as well. But uh, we can be there to answer questions and uh, just continue talking about the, the wholesome renewable product that, that we have in, in corn. And uh, we're always growing more. And, and uh, next year's quality will hopefully be as good or better than, than the current one. And uh, just keeping ways to uh, further increase the market. We all know yields. Yields keep going up, and we've got to keep uh, adding value to every bushel growing to keep rural America strong. Absolutely. Adding value and finding new uses for that corn are so crucial for the Market Development Action Team. Denny, I know that uh, the Corn Board has partnered with, or NCGA rather, has partnered with pork producers in the past. We talked about that in Episode 3. What's some of the work that the corn growers have done with pork producers? Well, I, I really... And, and I even grow pork on our farm, and I really like the connection between U.S. Meat and Export Federation. You know, uh, the pork, we, we can't we can't consume all the pork we have. And by helping them sell their pork in other countries, that, you know, more pork being fed, more bushels being ground. So I really like the work they do with U.S. Meat and Export Federation uh, as far as getting more pork out there absolutely getting more pork out there is a crucial part of that puzzle if we're selling corn in the belly of a hog guess what we're still selling corn that value is coming back to the producer and we've also seen some work that i know ncga has partnered on showing the value of ddgs in hog rations as well denny is that something you've taken a look at sure i mean you know uh, that way we got a high we got a high protein and and uh uh, something be put in the feed and also that that high protein DGGs can also be exported and and uh, you know they can use it in uh, feed for other countries in, in their livestock rations and that so that's all that's all part of just uh, building demand you know whether it be corn DDGs or whatever we can do to add demand you know, that's certainly true. And it's interesting in our six months here of the monthly grind, we haven't had an episode focused specifically on corn exports. But what we've seen in each episode is that so much of this corn crop finds ways to get itself off our shores, whether it's in the belly of animals or in the fuel tank of a vehicle. Corn has a lot of different functions. And Brian, that's got to be exciting to watch this industry develop here over the past couple of years. It sure is. Local processing within our country still makes the most sense because we have that value back and that benefits all our, our citizens and rural communities, but there are always some additional bushels that we do export un, unprocessed, and uh, you know, Mexico is at the top of the list right now trying to make sure that we don't have any uh, future restrictions to, uh, to move grain to Mexico and other important buyers. So whether it's grain or whether it's, as Danny mentioned, the DDG export, which is a condensed version of the corn kernel with all the protein and nutrients uh, together. Uh, they're both very, very important markets, and we need to continue to be on, on top of those two as, as world uh, trade issues continue to evolve. 
That is a fantastic point. I don't think we are going to have uh, any lack of work when it comes to trade issues here over the next couple of years. But in the meantime, domestically, there are always new uses for corn. And there are some old uses for corn that perhaps aren't as obvious to a lot of people. I remember in episode four, Brian, we had the chance to focus on corn's usage in the pet food industry. And corn's a big player over there in pet food, isn't it? It really is. And you, know, you, you just look around at the number of, of pets uh, out there among all of our urban friends, continues to grow, it seems. So tapping into the market again and, and making sure, again, those uh, consumers understand the value of, of corn, and I think that can also put a little more positive spin on us as a, a farmer as well when they can get a direct benefit of that. So it's not only the corn going in to provide protein for the, the food. We're also looking at some sustainable packaging options from plant-based products. We can make a biodegradable uh, package, whether it be the liner, whether it be the cardboard or carton that they're using to purchase that uh, food feed for their for their pets. So we can help on all, all fronts. Absolutely. And if we're helping keep Fido happy, we're, we're making corn look good in the eyes of consumers, that's for sure. And the other place we see corn get used a lot is keeping the poultry industry healthy. Denny, in episode number five, we focused on the work between the poultry industry and the corn growers. And my goodness, that is a powerful partnership, isn't it? Yeah, corn corn are in in poultry is actually our biggest consumer in the feed industry. Out of the different livestock, poultry consumes the most corn. So it's a big partnership. And the same thing as far as like Usapeak exporting exporting poultry. You know, it adds twenty eight twenty eight cents to the value of every bushel of, of the poultry exports and that. So poultry is a really big part. Yes, I remember, I believe we had Mike Beard on in that episode, and we were speaking a little bit, and he made a great comment. He said, one bird doesn't eat a lot of corn, but lots of birds, my goodness, when they all put their mouths together, they get a lot done. Gentlemen, Brian Thalman, Denny Vinacotter, while we've got you on the line, let's look out to the future a little bit. What's the what's the next step for the monthly grind and NCGA as we go out? Brian, what do you see here going forward? We're really excited to continue our partnership uh, we've been broadcasting in the past live from the National Cattlemen uh, uh, Beef Association Convention. We're also going to be live at Commodity Classic this year in Orlando. So we're really looking forward to that and uh, connecting with uh, the listeners and continuing to spread this story from this great venue. That's what it's all about. Denny, from the Market Development Action Team's perspective, any final thoughts here as we sign off on the last uh, monthly grind of the year? Well, we got, I, I really, we got a lot of new things going on next year. The team will kick off our Consider Corn Challenge number four. And, and I really think it's a great program. It's like almost trying to think outside the box on, on a new use for corn. So I, that's, that's more to come on that one. Absolutely. We'll be talking about the Consider Corn Challenge, I'm sure, on AOA going forward, folks. Denny Vanacotter from the Market Development Action Team, Brian Thalman, the Corn Board Liaison. Thanks for joining us. This has been this month's Monthly Grind here on AOA. And stick around. We'll have more of the program coming up right after this. Agriculture of America is brought to you by Cenex Premium Diesel. Diesel that doesn't mess around. As a farmer, growing your business is more than just a nine to five. It's your life's work. 
That's why the Roundup Ready Extend crop system goes all in to help you stay on top. Backed by decades of innovation, offering the latest trait technology and triple herbicide tolerance, plus more weed species controlled than any other soybean system. Because you mean business, and so do we. Learn more at systemofchoice.com. Claim based on approved EPA herbicide labels as of January 2021. Read and follow pesticide label directions, grain marketing, and other stewardship practices. I think farming picked me. <laughs> I didn't pick farming. I'm not afraid to try something new. It's my farm, my family, and our future. My channel Seedsman gets that. I get access to innovative products with personalized advice backed by data to maximize my yield potential. With Channel, I know I'll prosper for years to come. Define your future at channel.com slash future. Read and follow pesticide label directions, IRM, grain marketing, and other stewardship practices. Copyright 2022 Bayer Group. All rights reserved. You're listening to AOA for the American Ag Network. I'm Jesse Allen reporting. Let's take a look at what's going on in the market trade here on this Wednesday. We see moderate activity in quartered soybeans. The wheat market seeing a bit of a rebound here as we work through the session today with some double-digit strength in Chicago and KC wheat early on into moderate strength in the Minneapolis complex as well. So overall, a bit of a, a rebound day, maybe a bit of a technical bounce here possibly in the grain trade quarter wheat charts though they remain fairly wounded following the recent sell-off although prices uh, are attempting to bounce here now we'll have to watch to see if this is a more significant technical bounce or if the rallies end up being sold market bulls they're focused on the soybean and soybean markets here pretty closely those markets have seen a big run-up in the last couple of days we're seeing a little more strength there today as well although not as great as we have been seeing Bean oil is rallying a little bit as well. And we'll be watching meal and beans, especially as we near some resistance levels overhead. Can we break through those or will we just see a sell off as we hit those technical resistance levels? Now we watch the markets. We're watching South American weather, intense drought in Argentina is something that is of concern, although it could be offset by what currently appears to be a very large crop in Brazil that we have to keep our eye on. The December WASDE report coming up on Friday. We don't expect many changes, if any at all, with that report. However, we will keep our eye on that South American production. There could maybe be a bit of a change there. Livestock trade doing its best to try and rebound after a sharp sell-off yesterday with the hong market up moderately. While the cattle trade is relatively mixed, feeder cattle doing their best here despite corn prices up moderately on the day. You're listening to AOA for the American Ag Network. I'm Jesse Allen reporting. 54. So, basically, it's too late to start saving for retirement, right? Not right. Starting to save, even in your 50s, can really make a difference. Well, right now, saving seems hard to wrap my head around. Plus, with the way this year's been going... <laughs> hey, listen. It's okay. You still got this. Just go to aceyourretirement.org. It's an online tool from AARP that can help you get your retirement savings on track no matter your age. It's free and only takes about three minutes. I like three minutes. Yeah. At aceyourretirement.org, you'll chat with Avo, the friendly digital retirement coach. Just answer a few questions and you'll get a personalized plan and tips to help boost your retirement savings. Tips that are easy to understand and tailored to your lifestyle. I like that too. Plus, it's sponsored by AARP, so you know they got your back. Just head to aceyourretirement.org and make your plan to start saving for retirement. Thanks. That's aceyourretirement.org. A message from AARP and the Ad Council. 
Agriculture of America is brought to you by Senex Maxtron Synthetic Diesel Engine Oils. Oils that run smart. Keeping America's farmers and ranchers informed on AOA. Now back to Mike Pearson. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to today's AOA. Some of you who watch a lot of the news might have seen a headline this past weekend out of North Carolina. Gunfire to a power substation rendered just shy of 50,000 customers in Moore County, North Carolina, without power. And it was said this was an intentional and targeted attack. It highlighted some risks that certainly I hadn't considered here in rural America with regard to our power infrastructure. And it's got me curious for this next conversation. We're going to be speaking with journalist, author, and podcaster Robert Bryce. He's the author of six different books on the energy industry spanning from oil to electricity. Robert, thank you so much for joining us today. Happy to be with you, Michael. Let's talk about this event in North Carolina. Give us the facts. What do we know so far about what happened there in Moore County? Well, we don't know very much. Um, the news reports have been uh, very kind of scant in terms of any possible suspects, any possible motive. Uh, the news report says there has been one gun that it may be, it, the, the gunfire was maybe from one gun, which would be interesting because two power substations were hit in rural uh, Moore County. Um, I'm just looking at the outage map. Duke Energy is the provider in that area. It looks like about 10,000 people have gotten power in the last 12 hours or so. The count right now looks like it's about 22,000 without power. But Duke has warned that these outages could last until uh, Thursday, maybe longer. So it's it's it, this this attack, as I said in my piece in The Hill that I published yesterday, just another example of the vulnerability of our electric grid. And, you know, that's the key. I saw this headline and it certainly struck me as a little odd. It's it's very interesting, but I didn't realize this is not the first time power substations have been attacked, is it, Robert? No, this is remarkably similar, in fact, to an attack that happened almost exactly a decade ago. It was in 2013 in rural Santa Clara County, California, the Metcalf substation was attacked uh, by an unknown number of assailants. They used AK-47s, pumped 120 rifle rounds into the substation there. Um, there weren't any blackouts or any problems because they, that was detected fairly early, but no one has ever been apprehended. No one's ever been charged. Um, the assailants, uh, didn't leave any, any footprints. They wiped their footprints. The bullet casings were all with no, no footprint, no uh, fingerprints. Uh, they wiped their tire tracks. They cut the fiber optic cable to the substation. I mean, it was a very professional um, operation and, and mystifying to this day why, and why someone would do this. Uh, but, you know, equally mystifying is why someone would do this in Moore County, North Carolina. And so in that Metcalf case, there were never any arrests, never any charges in that instance? No, none. And uh, like this one, the FBI is investigating because this involves an attack on interstate commerce. Um, and uh, it's very disturbing. And the, the key point that I think here, Mike, to make is that it underscores the vulnerability of our grid, which is our biggest, most complex, and most important energy network. But these these vulnerabilities have been known for a while, and 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 professionals in the energy security uh, space have been saying we need to protect, we need better protect these substations. Now that's a tall order. Let me be clear, and an expensive one. But putting barriers around these critical transformers 
we need something besides just a, a hurricane fence. Chain link fences are, you know, they're good for keeping the, you know, the, the you know, the, the cattle or the livestock in the fence, but they're not very good at stopping bullets. <laughs> no, that is certainly true. And with regard to securing the grid or in particular, the rural aspects of the grid for a lot of our audience, I know there was a pile of money rolled out in that infrastructure reductor, that uh, Inflation Reduction Act. Robert, any opportunity for that to be used to help make the situation more secure? You know, I don't know that. It's an interesting question, Mike. I've not thought about that. I know there was some money in that uh, bill um, for uh, uh, additional transmission, high voltage transmission, but I don't know anything that it was in there about hardening the grid, which is what we're talking about now. Um, but we exchanged emails earlier this morning, and you, you know, we we did talked a little bit about well, how does this affect rural America? And I'll, I'll be clear, I'm, I'm all about rural America. I speak to a lot of electric cooperatives, publicly owned power agencies. And, you know, what I see over and over is this, the widening of the urban rural divide. And what I think the, the, the broader issues that this illustrates, this attack illustrates is how, how vulnerable a lot of these power substations in rural America are. But second, that it's another example of how rural America can face real problems if without electricity. And that uh, this is a very diffused ownership system and one that is very complex. And, and the rural cooperatives are under particular pressure when it, uh, looking at the future uh, based on, generate, on, on regulations coming out of Washington uh, that could very much hamper their generation mix. Yes. And so, Robert, I think as we look out to the future, that is the issue that has me a little bit more concerned. It sounds as though hardening the substations, this is something we need to look at and and start to price into these construction projects. But longer term, we got to have power running through these lines. And I'm curious, the generation mix looking out, how do you see it switching and how could it impact rural co-ops or rural generators most? Well, the the for customers and people listening to your audience, a lot of them are use are, are members of cooperatives, and cooperatives have a greater when compared to other uh, electricity providers across the country. The co-ops, generally speaking, have more dependence on coal-fired power plants. Well, I'm 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 pro natural gas. I'm pro nuclear, but I'm absolutely opposed to the closure of any more of our coal-fired power plants, particularly now when natural gas prices have been spiking. They've come down recently, but um, <clears throat> a number of federal regulations, not not ones that have been passed by Congress, but have been promulgated by the EPA, have have a bullseye target on these coal-fired generation plants. And so, all across the country, we're seeing coal plants that are either have either been retired or slated for early retirement because of rules on on cross-state air pollution, because of rules on on coal ash handling. Um, and these things could result in the closure of, of, of dozens of megawatts of, of coal-fired generation, and it's directly going to impact the cooperatives, and it's going to make power more expensive for rural Americans in, in those areas that, are, that have coal-fired power plants. Well, and that's just the thing. As these plants get phased out, and as you mentioned, they're not being phased out necessarily due to market forces. These are because of policies and, and regulations coming from Washington, D.C. Robert, what is being developed on the backside to make up for these megawatts that are being slated for early retirement? Are they all hoping it's just renewables? There is nothing. <laughs> when you were formulating that question, okay. Mike, I was thinking there is nothing that is the the firm generation that is going to, going to come behind this, and that's the real problem. I mean, you know, the power station issue and the vulnerability to gunfire is a clear problem, but the broader problem facing the U.S. is that we're mimicking Europe's failed energy policies. And I'm not a partisan. I, I'm not a Republican. I'm not a Democrat. I'm flat disgusted 
But this administration, they want to follow the European model. And the European model, what did they do? They overinvested in renewables. They underinvested in hydrocarbons. They closed their coal and nuclear plants, and they relied too much on imports. And that's what the, the kind of model that it, apparently this administration wants to mimic, and it's a deadly one. I mean, we, we need to wake up and pay attention here. And it's critical, as you know, for people in rural, you know, rural farmers, ranchers, they depend on that power line for, for their livelihoods. And we've got to make sure we have cheap, abundant, reliable power everywhere across the country. Absolutely. Now, you mentioned that uh, this administration seems to be taking a lot of its cues from Europe and their energy regulations. And Robert, of course, the situation around European energy has not been pretty this past year. Prices have exploded. <laughs> oh, there's, the under, is down. there's the understatement of the morning. Right? Is that soaking into this administration? Are we watching Europe and going, oh, maybe it's time to back off a little bit? Or in D.C., does it sound like they're full steam ahead? I don't see them paying the kind of attention that they should. I mean, I, it, where is the, the 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 leadership in the in the administration saying we've got to make sure we don't follow this ruined model? I mean, Europe is deindustrializing as we speak. We you, you, whether it's uh, chemical plants, auto manufacturers, uh, fertilizer producers. I mean, that's a key issue, of course, and and one that your your audience will know well. The, the fertilizer plants across Europe have shut down and there some of them are restarting because nat gas prices have come have come down but still the repercussions of this these the decades of failed energy policy are going to reverberate across Europe for for decades to come and they there is no easy fix but it all boils down to bad energy policy Robert, I've got a wild card question for you that, that sure. you just sparked in my brain. The manufacturing capacity in this country, we've been hearing about it expanding. We've been hearing supply chains coming back to the U.S. If we start manufacturing or continue manufacturing in a large way, we're going to need a lot more energy. Do we have the juice to bring manufacturing back to this country in a big way? Well, I, I think we do. And as I, you know, handicap the world, Mike, and I have a, I released another episode of my podcast, the Power Hungry podcast yesterday with Peter Zion, who has a remarkable new book called The End of the World is Just the Beginning. He's very bearish on China. He's very bearish on Europe, but long the U.S. He's, you know, and I am too. I'm a homer. I believe they're U.S. I'm very optimistic about the U.S. We have the rule of law. We have an educated workforce and we have relatively cheap energy. So you're already seeing chemical companies, including BASF, moving some of their operations here. And I think that's going to accelerate in the years ahead. And the key is, of course, going to be to keep you, uh, domestic energy prices low. And that's a big challenge because there's so much um, uh, there's so much momentum and, and money behind this renewable energy mirage. And we've got to be, we got, we have to sober up and face the facts. That is a great point. And Robert, I know you are highlighting the risks and the opportunities in the energy sector. You mentioned your podcast, the power hungry podcast. Of course, you've got books and your website. Could you tell our listeners where they could go to read a little bit more and hear some of the work that you've done? Sure. Uh, I'm easy to find on the Google. Um, RobertBryce.com is my website. I have the Power Hungry podcast, which is easily findable. Um, I'm on YouTube. Uh, I'm, I'm on TikTok, in fact, uh, at PWR Hungry. I'm also on Twitter. So uh, if you look for me, I bet you'll find me. There's a lot of opportunities, folks, out there. See what's happening in this energy space. It has huge impact. It is definitely going to change the way our lives work. We've got to keep up to speed on what's happening there. We've been speaking with Robert Bryce, podcaster, journalist, and author. And Robert, thank you for joining us for this update. Thanks for the invitation, Mike. And folks, stick around. When AOA returns, we're going to talk the rollout of broadband infrastructure across Illinois with the help of the Illinois Soybean Growers Association. Stick around for more AOA after this.
Agriculture of America is brought to you by Senex Premium Diesel. Diesel that doesn't mess around. You are not your diagnosis. A medical chart is not your identity. And vision loss does not define you. Your drive shows who you are. And you are not alone. Because we are driven too. To be a beacon of strength. A champion of courage. An advocate for hope. You are not alone. Because we are stronger together. We drive the research for the cures we are finding. We're fighting macular degeneration. Retinitis pigmentosa. Usher syndrome. And the entire spectrum of blinding retinal diseases. We fund. We fight. We, we win. We, 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 we are, are the, the foundation, foundation fighting, fighting blindness. blindness. Together, we are fighting blindness. Join the fight at fightingblindness.org. I'll take dig a little, learn a lot for 30 bushels. Soft and crumbly. Tom. How does healthy soil feel to the touch? Correct. Dig a little for 40 bushels. Sweet and earthy. Tom. What does healthy soil smell like? Yes, go again. Dig a little for 50 bushels. Dark, porous, and alive. Tom. What does healthy soil look like? You win. Understanding the basics and benefits of healthy soil can make your farm a winner, too, through lower input costs, better yields, and drought protection, which can lead to a healthier bottom line for your business. Contact your local Natural Resources Conservation Service office today to find out how you can unlock the secrets in your soil. This message brought to you by USDA's Natural Resources Conservation Service and this radio station. Join us every Tuesday for Around the Table, brought to you by CHS, as we discuss how cooperatives support farmers and ranchers and build strong communities. Each week, we'll chat with voices from across the cooperative system. From global market access to local expertise, we'll explore how co-op ownership means you own a world of opportunities. Tune in on Tuesdays or visit cooperativeownership.com to learn more. 2022 will be remembered for chaos between war, inflation, and weather. But if there's one thing farmers know, it's that there's no such thing as normal. That's why this year's DTM Ag Summit will focus on strategies to help conquer the chaos and ways farmers can build endurance for their business. Hear from leaders at CHS, Bayer, and Corteva, as well as farmers from across the country, all from the comfort of your home or office. Join us for this completely virtual event held December 12th and 13th. Register today at DTN.com slash Ag Summit. The archaeological record suggests that wheat was first cultivated in the regions of the Fertile Crescent, also known as the Cradle of Civilization, around 9600 B.C. The Roman goddess Ceres, who was deemed protector of the grain, gave grains their common name today, cereal. Wheat is the primary grain used in U.S. grain products. Approximately three-quarters of all U.S. grain products are made from wheat flour. The first bagel rolled into the world in 1683 when a baker from Vienna, Austria, was thankful to the king of Poland for saving Austria from 
Turkish invaders. The baker reshaped the local bread so that it resembled the king's stirrup. The new bread was called bugel, derived from the German word for stirrup. Ancient traditional tortillas were made from ground corn by Mexican natives as long as 2,000 years ago. However, flour tortillas only started to become popular in the 19th century. More types of foods are made with wheat than with any other cereal grain. These farm facts brought to you by the American Egg Network. We all know clean fields lead to strong yields. That's why ExtendFlex soybeans offer triple tolerance to dicamba, glyphosate, and glufosinate to control more weed species than any other soybean system. Even tough weeds like water hemp, palmer amaranth, and mare's tail. Get the control, flexibility, and proven performance you need so you can focus on the business at hand instead of beating back weeds. Explore the Roundup Ready Extend crop system at systemofchoice.com. Claim based on approved EPA herbicide labels as of January 2021. Read and follow pesticide label directions, grain marketing, and other stewardship practices. I think farming picked me. <laughs> I didn't pick farming. I'm not afraid to try something new. It's my farm, my family, and our future. My channel Seedsman gets that. I get access to innovative products with personalized advice backed by data to maximize my yield potential. With channel, I know I'll prosper for years to come. Define your future at channel.com slash future. Read and follow pesticide label directions, IRM, grain marketing, and other stewardship practices. Copyright 2022 Bayer Group. All rights reserved. Agriculture of America is brought to you by Senex Premium Diesel. Diesel that doesn't mess around. Keeping farmers and ranchers informed. AOA. Now back to Mike Pearson. Well, folks, thanks for tuning in to AOA today. You know, as we think about rural America, there are a lot of tremendous reasons to live and raise your family in this area, right? We've got some of the best views in the country in the in the rural areas. We've got fresh air, clean water, a lot of advantages. But there are some disadvantages, too, and notably one of them continues to be lack of high-speed internet, lack of broadband access, particularly with all the tools we have on our farms that require modern connectivity. Well, the Illinois Soybean Association is working to help end that in the state of Illinois. And joining me for an update is Todd Main. He's the Director of Market Development there at the Illinois Soybean Growers Association. And Todd, bring us up to speed. What's Illinois Soy working on here with regard to broadband? Well, good morning, Mike, and thanks for having us. Uh, we uh, <clears throat> are just kicking off a project where we're going to develop a pilot program that shows people at the county level, how they can put broadband together to solve this critical issue for them in their county. And the state of Illinois is about to receive a substantial amount of federal money to help build out rural broadband. And so we've got to make sure that counties have the tools necessary to get in line to get their fair share of those federal dollars. Now, that is a great point. Of course, if these dollars are coming out to the counties, we've got to make sure they know how to use them and how to get their hands on that money to make it work best for their particular geography. So what are some of the challenges that uh, these counties need help planning around, Todd? Well, we've got a couple of things that, that people need to be conscious of. One is that, you know, there's a technology issue because it's probably too expensive to put fiber optic cable to every farm uh, in a county. So we're going to need to have some combination of, of different technologies working together. So it's going to be wireless, it's going to be fiber optics, it's going to be uh, other things that become available, and they're all going to have to work together. And so we've got uh, 
we've worked out a way for, for counties to assess what they need in their counties. And then the second thing is when you're using different technologies, you've got to understand the, um, you know, the different variations in the terrain. So in, in central Illinois, where it's flat and straight and everything is, is pretty visible, you know, the highest point in the county, uh, you can figure that out pretty quickly. But in, in other parts of the state where, you know, you got some bigger hills and some valleys and river valleys and whatnot, you know, the, the topography makes a big difference in what you can use. And so just being able to assess that uh, for your county and be able to figure out how the network's going to go. Because, you know, we need to have the technology to the, to the home office and to the farm, but nowadays we're also thinking that we need to have it in the field because we need to have upstream as well as downstream. That's true. So many of these tools need to be working out there in the dirt. And, you know, Todd, you mentioned there are a lot of different factors to consider when putting this type of thing together. I've got to imagine this is more than Illinois soy could handle on your own. Is there a partnership coming together to push this across the finish line? Well, you know, we've got some great partners on this and we've got uh, a collaboration that with the folks at the Illinois State University GIS department, the, the geographic mapping shop, and they've been instrumental in developing a methodology that, to how to do this that we're going to be able to make available to everyone for free. Uh, we're also working with the folks at the Benton Institute for Internet and Society, and they're one of the nation's great leaders and think tanks in how to do this, and they're going to assist uh, counties in um, putting these plans together and, and going through a process that helps them work, work out exactly what's going to make a difference for them. And we're going to pilot that in five counties this year. And there's an opportunity if counties are interested in pursuing this to contact us and, uh, and, and, uh, and get in the program so that we can help them develop a project this year so that when that money comes in 23 and 24, they're going to be right there at the front of the line. And can counties or, or county leaders get information on this program on the Illinois Soy website, Todd? Would that be the best place to go? Yeah, or they can, you know, call and talk to us at the Illinois Soybean office, um, uh, and we're happy to, to help them. They could also contact the folks at the Benton Foundation or the Benton Institute. Um, they're based in Chicago, and uh, we'll be happy to help them. And, and actually, we're, we're really looking for counties that want to do this. We've got a couple of slots opening, and we're hoping to, to get those filled in, uh, you know, in December. Todd, are there any other consortiums like yours across the country, or is this kind of the first one? Well, you know, um, <clears throat> there's a lot of people that have been talking about broadband for a long time. And we all know with the pandemic, that really showed the holes in the system and how in rural you know, Illinois, it just doesn't work. And so we started thinking about this and putting this group together and developing this methodology is really a breakthrough. It's, we don't know of anywhere that people are doing it exactly this way and we really think that this is gonna give our, our folks an opportunity to be a leg up. Because if we can solve this for ag, we're also gonna solve it for telemedicine we're also going to solve it for education, and we're going to let rural communities in Illinois participate in the information economy, which means that young people are going to want to move there because the quality of life is better.
Absolutely. As we've seen this rise in remote work, the ability for more folks to work in rural America, bring those paychecks back to our small towns and communities could certainly be a win overall. Todd, look out long term. When do you expect this program to hit its stride? Will it be 23 or is it going to be another year into 2024? No, we think uh, we've got a we've got the methodology developed. We know it works on paper, so we got to test it on the ground, and we're going to do that in the first half of 23, and then we'll publish a finding of reports, and then we want to scale. We want to make it available to every county in the state, and and everybody around the country that wants to use it. That is fantastic, Todd. One more time, could you tell our listeners where they could go for more information on this pilot program? And even if they're from other states, might want to see how it works out in Illinois. Where could they find more information? Well, they can contact us at the Illinois Soybean Association or the Benton Institute for Internet and Society, and we'll get them plugged in. Fantastic, folks. Check that out. Bring these tools to your community, to your farm. We've been talking with Todd Main, Director of Market Development, the Illinois Soybean Association. Todd, thanks for joining us today. Thanks, Mike, and take care. And folks, tune in tomorrow. We'll talk markets with our friend Arlen Suderman of Stonex. We'll see you then for more AOA. Agriculture of America is brought to you by Senex Maxtron Synthetic Diesel Engine Oils. Oils that run smart. Tune in the first Wednesday of every month to listen to the monthly grind here on AOA. It's brought to you by our friends at the National Corn Growers Association, and each month we're going to dig into one specific aspect of corn demand. What happens to this grain after it leaves your operations and enters the global supply chain? That's what we're going to talk about each month on the monthly grind. Again, that's the first Wednesday of every month, and you can also find us wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. It's a show you don't want to miss. The landscape of media has changed and people are more skeptical than ever about where they get their news and information. While major news outlets show decreasing credibility, your local farm radio station still shows strong marks. In a recent survey, farmers rated information from their farm broadcasters as almost twice as reliable as major news outlets. Farm radio continues to be transparent, honest, and trustworthy. This message brought to you by the National Association of Farm Broadcasting. As an organ donor, your story doesn't have to end. A good in you can live on. In fact, you could save up to eight lives with your gifts. Your heart could keep beating. Your kidneys could keep filtering. And your intestines could keep on digesting for others. And that's not all. You can improve the lives of 50 more people as an eye and tissue donor, restoring sight and health. And you're not just helping out the person receiving the transplant. You're touching whole families with your life-saving gift. Register in minutes. Just go to organdonor.gov. You'll be happy you did. And just maybe, someone else will be happy too. Sign up today. Go to organdonor.gov. It saves lives. U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, Health Resources and Services Administration. 